Thank you so much for tuning into the Wiggly podcast. The thing is, what is it? So I've got up a review from New Zealand because, babes, we are a micro niche with a global reach. So here it is. It says, excellent eco gardening podcast, five stars. And that's from Island Bay Gardener. And I think they explain it quite nicely, my dears. This podcast is not just about worms. In fact, it hardly mentions them. Oh, we are today, though. Yeah, we're going to change that today. Oh, anyway, it gives listeners a ringside seat to discussions between a British wildlife-friendly eco-gardening small business-owning woman, her husband, farmer, and her greenie employee... Puts you in your place, Chubby. (laughs) The topics range from bovine TB through to great crested newts. The conversations are always entertaining and informative. If you're the least bit interested in gardening or farming, or you have the occasional fantasy of moving from the urban jungle to live in the countryside, then this is the podcast for you. So I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. I'm Richard from Wiggly Wigglers. There's no Farmer Phil today because Farmer Phil is off on a biodiversity call. Yeah, it's a shame, mate. It's a shame. I miss the old boy. I miss talking to the old fella today. But we have got... Perhaps he'll learn something. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But we are very pleased to get back to our traditional show format. And so I'm joined today by... Alison from Wiggly Wigglers. Who's got Plant of the Week. And any scratching and itching is because we've also got Jam... The dog. On the show this week, we've got a question about Hawthorne. We've got Plant of the Week, which is a sprawling-looking yellow thing. Not quite sure what that is. Rich is going to talk about killer worms. Right. We've got a little email in from Rosemary Moon, who is a brilliant food journalist and fan of the show. And we've got a little bit of news on the oinkers. Oinkers update. <laughs> Very good, Richard. Can I have Do a you like that? Yeah. yeah little piggy. <laughs> anyway, first of all, we're in the sun. Any uh, non-UK listeners, the sun is um, a very popular tabloid newspaper. It is. Which I don't know anyone who reads one. No, it's it's utter crap, isn't it? Anyway, this is from George, my brother. (laughs) (laughs) There we are. Never mind. And uh, it's on the gardening page with Peter Seabrook, with Steve and Val Bradley. And folk ask questions to Val. And one of the questions is, where can I find out about wormeries from Dee Hilliard in West Heath? And she says, wormeries consist of several chambers on top of each other. Garden and house waste is added at the top. Nutrient-rich liquid and solid material is extracted lower down. The firm best known for supplying wormeries is Wiggly Wigglers. Call them on 01981 500 391. So thank you to Val. Excellent. But on the other hand... The difference to the last write-up read in the sun, wasn't it? Well, I... Don't cash it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Claire Short. It was a while ago, wasn't it? Nice yeah, and yeah. it was the son who printed that famous line, I've wiggled Prince Charles's worm, when my mum phoned up and said, what have you been doing with Prince Charles <laughs> now, Heather? 
I didn't do anything. That was Mum. a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. it's still on the web though. Is it really? Because when I looked up yesterday to see if we were in the sun, that came up. Really? Anyway, you've got another article here. Yes, you've given me this this morning. I didn't. I didn't know anything about this. This is an interesting article. I think you were a little bit peeved about it, really, weren't you? And, and actually, it's a bit irresponsible, I think. Well, read the headline. That's the thing. Okay, but the headlines is "Worms are killing the planet," says top researcher. And this is from uh, Compass and Associations um, research director Jim Fredrickson. And uh, he says, Worms produce a significant amount of greenhouse gases. Recent research done by German scientists has found that worms produce a third of nitrous oxide gases when used for composting. And of course that, that might well be the case, but it's, the article's completely out of context. There's no balance to it at all. So I think if Jim was aware that this article was going in in the format that it has gone in, a little bit irresponsible perhaps... Shall I read the rest of the article? Do you want me to whiz through it? I think you should whiz through it, and I set you a challenge, Rich. Okay. Which is to contact Jim (coughs) and ask him about it, and perhaps invite him on the show. Because we constantly send out messages that we should be composting, and we should be looking at our own waste. And then... You think, oh, what do I do to be right? Well, that's it, you see. I mean, that's why these articles can be so misleading. People just go about reading little articles like this and and consequently are ill-informed. But I'll just read a couple of... I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read a couple of paragraphs probably one of the most significant ones. Worms can be used for homegrown composting or commercial composting and are typically red worms. They're used to recycle food scraps and other organic materials into valuable soil worm compost, otherwise known as vermicompost. The compost can then be used to grow plants. We have concentrated on getting waste out of landfill and into worm compost systems, but they can actually produce more greenhouse gases than landfill sites produced, Fredrickson has said. Under the waste strategy, the government has strongly supported the composting of waste in efforts to reduce the land filling of biodegradable waste. This includes encouraging householders to invest in home composting systems. Although Fredrickson says that worm compost is a positive thing, he claims that not enough research has been done on worms releasing polluting gases. Fredrickson said everybody loves them because they think they can do no harm, but they contribute to global warming. (laughs) People are looking into alternative waste treatments, but we have to make sure that we are not jumping from the frying pan into the fire. But it's, it's an interesting one. The other thing he says here, uh, the emissions that come from these worms can actually be 290 times more potent than carbon dioxide and 20 times more potent than methane. In all environmental systems, you get good points and bad points. It's true that nitrous oxide can be between two or 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide, but on balance, there is 1,000 times more carbon dioxide in the air than there is nitrous oxide. Also, if you look at the balance between the activity of worms and how they benefit the soil and nutrify the soil, if you think about it, you know, worms perpetuate the growth of lots of soil microbial life. A lot of that microbial life is responsible for the sequestration of greenhouse gases. So consequently, if you have healthy soil that might well be there as a consequence of worm activity, then surely there's a balance to be had. And, wow. and also, you know, if you think about it, worm compost stimulates um, feeds, feeds microbial life in the soil, stimulates um, plant growth and whatnot. If you have good, strong, robust vegetation, then again, that's responsible for sequestration of greenhouse gases. So where's the balance? You know, there's nothing to mention those points in here. It's a slightly unfortunate article. I think these days, really, you know, it's irresponsible to write things like this because it has never been more important to have balanced reporting so that people get all the information they need and they can make the decisions off the back of that. So are we safe in saying 
If you're worm composting, you're doing more good than harm. Absolutely. Yeah, and me. But I mean, we I mean, might we're be slightly, biased. slightly biased, but uh, you know, I think we've we've got a reasonable amount of experience now. Uh, My and, challenge uh, is get the composting association okay. roving Ricardo. So uh, get get Go Jim in and, and see if he, he'll uh, see if he'll and I think you've opened to come a and whole... join us on the Wiggly Sofa. Exactly, and I think you've opened a whole new can of worms there, <laughs> indeed, because there must be scientists and environmentalists jumping up and down on the tube saying. Richard, you've given us the wrong figures on nitrous oxide. You've given us the wrong information on microbial activity. And they want to come back on it. So if you do, the thing is, come and have an argument. Come and sit on the wiggly sofa yourself. Or if not, we'll Skype you on your sofa at home. Anyway, next email we've got in is from Rosemary Moon. And she's a journalist. She's a food journalist. And she presented Dish of the Day on, on Pebble Mill. Do you remember Pebble Mill, daytime TV? <laughs> I do. It's a good programme, that. <laughs> there, wasn't there a screen? All these people used to walk behind the screen. you get people wandering about in the park behind, yeah. the, behind the, uh, the, the, um, the people that used to present the show. Wasn't it that guy also who had the big map of the UK out in the lake? Oh, was that, was that Pebble Mill? And he used to jump Mill? from one to the other, I think. <laughs> was <laughs> brilliant. Day, a daytime telly. Yeah, yeah. with his yeah. jumper on. Anyway, she... Really? She, she was from there, but and rubbish. she writes in, <laughs> yeah, she writes in loads of foodie magazines now, and she's a consultant for Waitrose, and she says lots of things. First of all, I'm putting Moon Bites on paper, but in the post you today, and it's a little magazine that gives independent farm shops a marketing tool. Her passion is local sustainable food, and she says. Secondly, I'm catching up with the podcast again. Just listen to Kitty Corrigan and Fair Trade for British Farmers. If you missed that show, it's number 87. It was a great help because I'm off to the Royal Highland show tomorrow to host the Waitrose marquee for them. I'm really pleased that she said that Fair Trade might roll out into the fruit sector and hope that it will cover salads and veg too, as so many people are really struggling with the current rounds of price wars and margin squeezing by supermarkets. Thirdly, Willie and Mariella sent me a wiggly bouquet as a thank you for Open Farm Sunday. What more lovely way is there to be thanked? And our wildflower turf is delighting us. Although we think we'll have the village in so that they can see what's going on and why we're not cutting our grass. So thank you, Rosemary, for all those comments. And if you'd like to go to Rosemary's website, what I really like about it is she does a dish of the day and she picks something really seasonal, Mm. cooks it up, and there's great photos. So go to www.moonbites.info and you can meet up with rosemary and um, the farmers that supply her with the raw products for her dishes of the day anyway al nice to see you again nice where to have see you been hiding oh no i've been busy working that's <laughs> <laughs> from the phone oh hey we've got a new phone system with the podcast on hold. Yeah, people who are ringing in are saying, oh, that's a jolly message. Is it always like that? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, but then when oh, we no, no, that was a jolly message. And Richard was on there, <laughs> and they, I don't think they were too impressed. <laughs> so folk are phoning in and saying, 
ho, 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 that's a jolly message. Yes. <laughs> Typical wiggly customer. But you've put something naughty on there, haven't you? You've been exploiting my misfortune again, my sides of things. And I haven't been on to listen to it, so I'm not sure I might have to go on there and uh, tell you off. If you do want to call Wiggly Wigglers, do try and make sure you're on hold because you, you can get little glimpses of Richard's bowel movement oh, in the hospital. Yeah. And I had, so one, I had one chap phone up on Monday morning and he said, how is that old boy then on that podcast? And I said, oh, he's all right. He said, has he been yet? <laughs> and I said, yes, yes. He said, only I was just getting to the point where I thought he was going to. And you come on, love. <laughs> and do you know why I was answering the phones all on my own? No. <laughs> because we've had flash floods in Herefordshire and Farmer Phil had to set off on the tractor to bring the people to work. That was a nightmare. Yeah, we thought we were going to have a day off. <laughs> no, no, no. We even had a power cut and everything. Oh, opportunity knocks. Come on, let's go. But they came back on again after yeah, that. No good. But I've never seen floods like that. No. I mean, I've never seen floods like that in the, in the winter, let alone in the, in the middle of June. Yeah. Flaming June. Crazy, wasn't it? We had the uh, Yeza Brook out in flood down on the common land by S, and all the cattle were stranded really? on a piece of ground, and they actually went into the houses down there, and it hasn't done that for years. Good Lord. So it's, yeah. uh, what did that mean to the cattle, then? Were they bright well, it's, enough? It was all right this morning, again, yeah. but they were just stuck for the night. Luckily, it was away from the brooks. Yeah, so it was, it was just static yeah. water. Anyway, what is this... Um... This is a sprawling object that you yeah. said. It was ladies' bed straw. Uh, got sprawling leaves and stems and a nice yellow flower, not pink flower, Rach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Rach. What's all with a pink flower? No. <laughs> um, and it's found in a drier patch, not like the marsh bed straw. It's found more on a drier site along coastal paths and old grasslands. And your dog's eating it now, Hev. Yeah, Sorry, my, uh, the meadow at the back of my house is absolutely full of ladies' bed straw. There's more really? ladies' bed straw than anything else. Yeah, the whole three acres is ladies' bed straw. Yeah, it does really well on that bank. Imagine, because some areas you don't, you don't see it at all. Because when we're harvesting the seeds, up in Shropshire, you, you find a lot of it on the drier sites. Yeah. Uh, it's quite tricky to spot, really, because the flowers will go up with the grasses, but the leaves will go along the ground, you see. So it's quite difficult. It's a very petite flower. And it smells, it's supposed to smell of honey, but... I, I don't think it smells too much of honey. What do you think, Jan? You can make dye mm. out of it. And also called maid's hair. For in Henry VIII's reign, maidens did wear silken callus to keep in order their hair made yellow with dye. Oh. Mm, there you are. What's it good for? How is it good for any inverts? Um, loads. I've got a whole range of butterflies and moths that I had a look at. Loads and loads of different ones you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Um, Let's have the whole list, Al. Um, would you like, would you no, like you to have a look at the list? Carry on. Read it. It's, 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 a a it's, great. it's an audio um, file. <laughs> Dear people listener. all have different species, won't they, for um, you know, in the areas straw, that they live in. So. moth, the archer's dart and red chestnut moss, the ruddy carpet, royal mantle, common carpet, water carpet, beach green carpet, the red twin spot carpet, mottled grey and green carpet moth caterpillars. Wow. wow. Yeah, whole All range. sorts of goodies, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I it's a true it. native plant it really and it can is, support yeah. lots and lots of different life. So, uh, it looks great as well. It's in flower at the moment and it'll flower up until the end of August. Apparently in the olden days they used to dry the stems and it's called ladies' bed straw because they used to stuff mattresses and pillows with it because it's scented. 
Ah. Maybe that's what Henry VIII is referring to. Yeah, and when it's dry, the flowers um, are supposed to be more highly scented than what they are now. Let's have a sniff then. You have a sniff. A podcast sniff. Podcast sniff. Just moving over from the wiggly sofa. The smell of Henry. Right, here we go. (laughs) Oh, I can smell it. It's really nice, isn't it? Hmm. You'd be hard pressed not to smell it. I've got, I've got <laughs> effort you just put into that. Yeah, no, I'm really got much smell. It does smell lovely, yeah. The smell of honey. It's a lovely looking little plant. I like it because it's delicate. I, I must, I must admit, I do like the delicate things. Where about. would you plant it though? Because it's going to look like a mess. Well, you need to plant it in, with with other stuff. I mean, the ladies' bed straw in the in the uh, pasture behind us doesn't look like that because it's it all grows together. Yeah, so it, it has lots and lots grasses. of other species to support it. So right. So it's definitely something you'd mix in with other plants. I always think it's quite hard to spot in a meadow. Would you? Do you think it is? When we well, not in my seed. meadow, because that's pretty much all you can see. It's ladies' bed straw, but uh, this time of year, it's it's really prolific. And I think it does well off the back of grazing. You know, the the, the sheep go in there August, September time, and the last couple of years, since it's been grazed relatively hard in the autumn, the ladies' bed straw has done well off the back of that. Hmm. It'll always root up from the base of the plant. You see. So if you take that out of the pot, you probably have the roots. Oh, it's oh, no, a mess, doesn't it? Don't break it. <laughs> oh. No, I you didn't have mean... The, the roots coming up from the bottom all the time, so it forms a thicker, denser mass. That's obviously only a 90ml pot. Can you see any roots around there? Yeah. Inside? There Tons. you go, see? Mm. And that'll, that'll branch up another stem. Right. Bright yellow root. Yeah. So there's a couple of old dead plum trees in the garden, just the trunks. Mm. And then all the bark is peeling off the trunks. And on one of them, I noticed the other day, there's ladies' bed straw coming up about a third of the way up the trunk. Because what it's done is it's come up oh, right. inside the bark oh, and it's yeah, poking its go. head out from the inside. And that's, you know, that's a real indication of how creepy crawly they yeah, can be. Yeah, that's it. The Irish use it as a yellow dye. And the English dip the flowering tips in water and it forms a pleasant summer drink. Oh. We could do that. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, we'll a have a like, tasting um, when you've gone, listener. Like elderflower, make some bed straw cordial. Yeah. Mm, why not? Botanical name? Gallium verum. Thank you, Al, for that. There we are. Now, if you want to know more about Wiggly Wigglers, I suggest one of the best things you can do is subscribe to our e-news. And this month especially, because if you do subscribe, you could end up with a free copy of our book, Bringing a Garden to Life. But last month's e-news, which you can also still get if you're really, really quick, was on about fly swats. Now, you know we've got these leather fly swats, haven't we? Yeah. For whacking flies. Very colourful. Yeah. Well, Rach says that the old plastic variety, a pound, is better because it's got holes in the plastic. But for me, these are cool, and you can whack flies definitely to death with them. Um, But anyway, (laughs) Richard sat there saying, I don't want to whack flies to death. Anyway, um, Joan Yearall says, I got rid of my flies in the house by spraying them with a solution of vinegar and washing up liquid. And I also hang sprigs of rosemary all over the house. And that definitely deters them. Right. Handy hint. Great idea, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure about spraying vinegar all around your house, but mm. still. <laughs> I'd get rid of anything, wouldn't I? <laughs> Friends. I do hope she's balsamic. <laughs> Rich, we've got a um, book review coming up on this traditional Wiggly podcast. Yes. In fact, I don't think that was plant of the week. That was actually plant of the decade, wasn't it? <laughs> 
Um, but before the book review, we've got a question for Alison just while she's here, and it's from Kate. She says, we are thinking of planting hawthorn instead of putting up a fence in our garden. We'd like to know how high they grow, as we want to have privacy, and how quickly. I saw that you normally sell half-metre hawthorns. Do you sell them any bigger? Thank you for your help, Kate. Um, Well, yeah, we can supply them bigger, but there's no advantage in supplying them bigger. The smaller plants will catch up, and there's the added benefit of the roots will take better for a smaller plant. The bigger plants that may get damaged with our couriers are in the post, so uh, we do tend to send them out 40, 60 grade, which is absolutely fine, spot on size for hedging plants. So even if they were bigger, the smaller ones would catch up? Yeah, they definitely would planted little tiny plants before and as long as the ground is prepared properly they do tend to grow quicker than planting a three three to four foot one and how long does it take to grow a fence worth i know so many people always ask me this and it's like how long's a piece of string really it just depends on the ground conditions but you should get approximately eight to twelve inches a year growth on that people don't tend to like being patient with their hedges you get a nice hedge within three to four years yeah well our Um, hedge is now about four years old and it's massive now you can't see through it Mm. yeah because you first planted that when i was here i've been here how long have you been here i've been here five years five years oh well it could be a five-year-old five-year-old hedge 2004 i thought Mm -hmm. but now you've said that well, say it's yeah. five years old. Five years. Five yeah. years old, and you just can't see through it, and it's very, very tall, and we've trimmed it many times. But we did prepare the soil, so a fence. Three would years, be, you three get a years really nice, a, fence a nice bushy hedge. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Excellent, Rich. You've got a book in your sticky little fingers. Yes. Well, that, we we did, we got a quick squiz at this last week, didn't we? I'm not sure my fingers are sticky. Yeah, that isn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> you should put them but, through uh, Dan's hair. I've got, a, I've got a confession to make. I haven't. A lot of gel. Um, he's, he's, uh, yes, well, the girls have got someone pretty to look at, haven't they, now? It, yeah. While Dan's hopping along. Yeah, we must uh, say, poor old Dan, who works at Wiggly Wigglers and sorts out all our stock, has broken his fourth metatarsal while playing football, I believe, on the lawn. So get well soon, Dan. At least it's not as bad as your breakage rich no gosh no it's nothing pales into insignificance by comparison <laughs> anyway tell us about this book well this book this is uh, we mentioned uh, terry in fact terry featured on the podcast last week just a superb little book it's a it's brilliant reading what it is essentially is that it's terry's life on his allotment i can read a little bit of the introduction at the beginning terry walton was born in 1946 in the ronda and has lived in south wales all his life he has gardened on the same allotment since the age of four Most of Terry's working life was spent with a local company where he became managing director. Since then, a new career has beckoned in the media, starting in 2003 with the adoption of his allotment by the Jeremy Vine Show on BBC Radio 2. Terry gives regular updates live from his hillside plot every fortnight. What day is it on, Listener, I think you could have listened... If you listened to Radio 2 last Friday, then you will have heard Terry talking about a wormery. But it's on every fortnight every on a fortnight Friday. On, on a Friday on the Jeremy Vine show, yeah. Which is midday-ish. He has also appeared on TV, The Big Dig, Grassroots, Going to Seed and I Love Wales. His opinions are regularly sought by local radio stations and newspapers and he gives many talks about his favourite topic, allotment gardening. This is his first book. 
And interestingly, he said to me, the publishers invited him to write this book because he's always wanted to write a book. And he said if they hadn't, he probably he would never have gotten around to it. So, you know, I think for, as far as the reader's concerned, he, he, he definitely should have got around to it because it's superb. I think he, he came out, published in April, so it sold something like 10,000 copies already. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? What an achievement. But it's a great read. So it's all about Terry's life. Jeremy Vine does the foreword. He says, The Walton story is captivating in the same way his broadcasts are. His early childhood and dalliance with serious crime, well, black current scrumping. The 42 <laughs> plot allotment where newcomers start at the far corner and gradually move down, surely a parable for life. The picture he paints of the local cobbler working from the shed is in his back garden. I never thought I would get so wrapped up in the origins of the Glamorgan Association of Allotments or keen to know the reason nobody in the Ronda grew leeks. But Terry has grown us a blooming page-turner here. As befits a man who got his first plot in 1957 for 35 pence a week and seems only to have lost his temper once in 1968, the book is full of practical, calm advice. Terry's an avid grower of all things in his allotments. I think his trends have changed throughout his life. Um, but he used to grow flowers. He used to grow flowers to sell. And he talks about his wedding flowers here. At 5.30 on the morning of our wedding, I was up at the allotment. Several days before, Anthea had decided she wanted yellow roses for a bouquet and her bridesmaid would carry poses of sweet peas. So there I was on that pivotal day in my life, cutting all these flowers, which had to be perfect. I picked the very best, some of the loveliest blooms I have ever grown, and took them to the florist in Tony Pandy, who regularly bought her flowers from me. She had to make up these arrangements and deliver them to Anthea's parents' house by mid-morning. I then went back home and got myself ready to meet up with my best man, John, and walked to the church a mile away in time for the wedding. When Anthea came through the church doors with her bridesmaids, all carrying their beautiful floral arrangements, I could feel a lump in my throat, as I thought how I'd been able to supply those special flowers for this special day for my own allotments. Plus a touch of professional pride, of course, that just like the vegetables I sold to my customers, they were only a few hours old. Oh, Isn't that lovely? Yeah. Absolutely lovely. So, I mean, there's a couple of bits in here, you know, he, he's, he's really interesting life. If you want to know anything about pencils, how pencils are made, then, then it's just <laughs> as worth reading the book for that. Uh, he says... Uh, he says Why uh, would he quite, know how He's very entertaining. He tells him earlier on the book that he hasn't got a sense of humour, but he's, he's got a really good dry sense of humour. And uh, he says, uh, life during my teens was full to overflowing. I was tall and thin, six foot two with more bones than a kipper. And there wasn't an ounce of fat on me because I never stopped burning energy from the early hours of the morning until sometimes 11 o'clock at night. Well, why would he know about pencils? His first job was working in a, in a pencil factory. Right. He was, he's a chemist, so um, his, his responsibility was to test the, the paints and some of the materials used to, to, to make the pencils. Because those days, they were originally pencils were made with lead. So, you know, your kids would be there chewing on a pencil, <laughs> ingesting all this lead and whatnot, you know. <laughs> nice. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he, he was responsible to make sure that, uh, that the, these pencils weren't going to go off and poison classrooms full of children. I can still taste uh, it, actually, can you? Yeah. And when I chewed my chewed lead away. pencil. Um, but it's full of it's full of it reads beautifully. It flows really well. It's very interesting, and uh, there's lots of uh, there's lots of helpful advice in here for the gardener as well. And there are there are many things, lots of Terry's top tips, top monthly tips, and things like that. And he also has contributions from his wife Anthea, who who does recipes. 
And what I could do is just read you uh, just one recipe for July. And, and after this, we're going to have to have the um, chocolate rating. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we will. Gosh, it's like going back in time, isn't yeah. it? We haven't done this for the ages. chocolate rating. It's great to have a book that, uh, to be really sort of passionate about. Okay, Anthea's recipe for July, gooseberry chutney. God, you know, my mum used to make gooseberry fall to die for when we were children. I haven't had it for ages. I must, but because I haven't got any gooseberry bushes at home. I right? have. You can have some of my gooseberries. Really? Yeah. All right. I might raid your gooseberry yeah. bushes and take them from the <laughs> There you go, I'm fancy knocking up some of that fall we used to make. <laughs> Wonder what else yeah. we'll find under the gooseberry bushes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, here's how Anthea says As gooseberries approach maturity, you may feel hard put to find appealing ways of using their often very lavish crops. You can make fools, jams, wine and endless pies and tarts with them and any surplus freezes extremely well. But they are also ideal for making savoury preserves such as this really simple but almost addictive chutney from Anthea's repertoire. And listener, you're going to have to buy the book in order to get the ingredients and see how to make it. God, he's tight. (laughs) (laughs) Chocolate rating. So, to remind listeners, this is how it works at Wiggly Wigglers. We have a chocolate rating for every book review we do. And the chocolate rating is based on the following. Number one is the worst chocolate ever made on earth. It's absolutely horrible. And now it's available in our local garage. Really? Hershey's. Is that right? Yep. Hershey's. They're selling Hershey's. Yeah. Good Lord. And why don't they just sell blocks of salt and call them chocolate? <laughs> Hershey's, number one. That's just, Yuck! That's disgusting. Horrible, stuff. horrible, horrible. It's not no. edible, is it? Surely. <laughs> Definitely not. Number two, Nestle. Say no more. Number three, an average chocolate, Cadbury's, who've just lost all those jobs. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Obviously, the reason that they've lost all those jobs is because... Of the chocolate rating on the Wiggly podcast. So sorry to that local company, Cadbury's. Um, it's nothing to do with the fact that the cream eggs made from Lempster apparently had salmonella. It's all our fault. So sorry, <laughs> everyone, about that. Number four, now we're coming on, is Galaxy. <laughs> and, uh, I'm num- still recovering from the, from the <laughs> You're saying that the Cadbury's cream eggs had salmonella. Was it the Cadbury's cream eggs, especially? Or was it just, is it just really an association of salmonella and eggs? Or was it just chocolate per se? Cadbury's chocolate, was it? Oh, I see. Gosh, that would be really funny, wouldn't it? There's salmonella in cream eggs, not just eggs. Or not just chocolate. Maybe that was a Michael joke. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, moving on. And the best chocolate on earth. But then again, there is green and blacks, and that is made by Cadbury's now, because that is very, very good. But even so, for these purposes, the best chocolate on earth is Milka. So on a scale of one to five, Richard, this is your moment to define the Terry Walton book. What is your chocolate rating for my life on a hillside allotment? I tell you what, that book is like being in a bath of Green and blacks with a dozen dancing girls. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a milker? So that's a milker. Oh! <laughs> Is that the first uh, ever Richard Milker? <laughs> a chocolate bath with a dozen dancing girls. God, Good yeah. lord, Alison. Ever made him say that? Don't know. <laughs> 
Pas spesi si man. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that because where would the dancing girls be? We're shocked. In the bath or? Yes, yes, yes. Shall I, shall I explain to you? I'm just thinking. Simple, relatively simple concept. That, no, I was just thinking of their frock. That's really appealing. Yeah. The frock. No, no frocks, Ev. Oh. No frocks. <laughs> Chucky. Naked girls. Oh. Bath. Good lord. Right, well, obviously, this has ruined the rating on the whole podcast <laughs> because now it's an X rated podcast. Ooh, yeah. I don't know what to say after that, really. I'd not thought of not having frocks on. Um, anyway, what, what I have got to say is that the Oinkers are coming. And that's this Friday. The Oinkers are arriving. We've made our appointment with David Wilson at Home Farm. And we've even joined the Rare Breed Trust. Excellent. So we will leave you until next week. We'll just let Monty say, let your iPod bloom, because the thing is... We haven't actually got a new worm cast from him because he breaks up next week from school. So he's going to be in our recording studio making his new recordings. Or else he'll just sit on the sofa and speak to Michael. And no doubt try and persuade Michael to let him play his guitar on the podcast. So it's goodbye from me at Wiggly Wigglers on a pretty damp day in June. Uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye. The Wiggly Podcast. Let your iPod bloom. We've had an interesting podcast. It's been slightly balmy. I never thought of not having a frock on. Right.